As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research, highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me on the line today is Professor Mark Cohen. And listeners, please bear with me. This is a rather accomplished man we're speaking to today, so the bio might take a little while. Mark is a registered medical practitioner with degrees in Western medicine, physiology, physiological medicine, and biomedical engineering. He's currently chair of the Australasian Wellness Association, board member and past president of the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association, that's AMA, member of the RACGP, Royal Australian College of GPs, and AMA Joint Working Party on Integrative Medicine, and a board member of the Global Wellness Summit, as well as sitting on the editorial boards of a number of international journals. Mark is a regular media contributor for major Australian newspapers, ABC Radio National, and many regional stations Australia-wide, as well as television appearances on shows like ABC, SBS, Channel 7 and Channel 9 News, current affairs and lifestyle programs. Professor Cohen is active in research into the efficacy of integrative medicines such as organic food, nutritional supplementation, herbal medicine, yoga, acupuncture, electromagnetic field therapy, breathing techniques and wellness metrics. So I'm very glad to have you back on the program. Welcome, Mark. Well, thanks for the invitation, Andrew. It's great to be with you. Mark, firstly, I'd like to delve back into your history. And I know we did this um, last year when we spoke to you first, but I, you've got a very interesting story. ...and psychological medicine on pain. They wouldn't let me study pleasure at that stage. Um, <laughs> you know, positive psychology was 20 years away. And um, within that, it was you know, the psychology and physiology of pain. And then that got me interested in Chinese medicine because it came up against acupuncture analgesia and the opiate system and um, the whole perspective of Chinese medicine, which was a more preventative approach. I went back and did fourth year medicine, took three years off to do a PhD in Chinese medicine, realized that there was a whole um, career in, in bridging the gaps between disciplines and that you know, Eastern medicine and Western medicine were quite far apart then. But the gap in between them was really interesting. It was a great space for me to be in. And in the wellness space, which is where I've always been, mm. it's, it's always in the gaps because wellness is a, a bridging discipline. It's a, it connects all the different disciplines. So I um, did my PhD in Chinese medicine, went back to finish my Western medical degree, got interested in information theory and medical informatics. As that, that 
helped bridge the gap. And then I did a second PhD in, in electrical engineering or you know, biomedical engineering, looking at realising that technology and how the body runs as an information network was really important. And throughout the 1990s, um, started teaching in medical school, different electives. And at that stage, I think it was in 1991, I got, when I graduated as a doctor and started working, I also was introduced to um, Dean Ornish's lifestyle program and mm-hmm. you know, some of his research. And I spent a week at a health retreat with Nishala Devi, who was his yoga teacher for his research programs, and became aware that there was a whole different way of, of treating chronic disease that, that was the wellness approach. And that was really what I was interested in. So that sparked me off to um, continue researching that area. And I've been very blessed throughout my life to have fantastic mentors. And um, in the mid-1990s, I met Horst Reschelbacher, who was the founder of the Aveda Corporation, who introduced me to the spa industry. Mm. And um, I went and gave a lecture at one of his conferences in Los Angeles and invited me to the Aveda Spa. And at that stage, I thought a spa was a, a bath with jets. <laughs> And um, invited me for a week to spend in this spa. I thought, how does that work? It's going to get really wrinkly hands for that one. <laughs> and and realised when I went there that there was an organic restaurant where the chef would come and chat with you about what's seasonal and what, what I liked and what he could make for me. And I had five hours of treatments every day and walked on a 400-acre property and did Indian sweat, traditional sweat lodge ceremonies and realised there's a whole industry based on you know relaxing, exercising, eating good food and sharing your feelings. And that... um. You know, set me off to say, how do we bridge the gap with science and sort of spirituality and, and the sort of touchy feely world? And that led me to you know, become involved, and I set up a, a, a centre for complementary medicine at Monash University, which where I taught medical students about a whole range of complementary therapies, humour and healing, team building. We took them rafting for weekends. We took them rock climbing. We took them to a health, the same health retreat on top, which no longer exists, but to an organic health retreat um, to eat organic food and do yoga and meditation for a week. And um, that centre grew over some years. But I was very much the alternative medical doctor in the, in the conservative Western medical faculty at Monash. And then um, around 2000, I was um, offered a job at RMIT to be the conservative Western doctor amongst the alternative medical faculty <laughs> or the, the Department of Complementary Medicine, which yeah. taught chiropractic osteopathy and Chinese medicine. At, and um, I was offered a you know, head of department role, professorship at RMIT, so I jumped ship. And that, again, you know, I bridged that gap, but it was quite balanced for me because I went from being the, the alternative person amongst the conservative doctors to being the conservative doctor amongst the alternative doctors. Um, and I'm still there 14 years later at RMIT and have been um, progressing uh, wellness and uh, as an academic discipline. And in around that same, just before I got my job at RMIT, I was, I was um, introduced to... Uh, now a good friend of mine, Ingo Schwader, who was then the first global spa director for a five-star luxury hotel chain. He he worked at the Mandarin Oriental Hotels. After he, just, he just finished building and um, or uh, opening Ananda in the Himalayas, which was then the premier health retreat in the world. And he got snapped up by Mandarin Oriental to lead up their global spa division. And they wanted to have wellness lead their brand. And he needed people to teach wellness practitioners, but no one knew what that meant. So everyone said, "Oh, go speak to Mark Cohen. He'll he'll work it out for you." And mm. he did. And um, after a few years' discussion of how 
what a wellness practitioner would look like, what sort of program that would look like, and what the industry needed. And a lot of industry consultation, we realised the industry, the wellness industry, needed leadership. And rather than do it just a, a safe level, you know, vocational, you know, advanced diploma or a bachelor degree, we'd set up a master's degree. We'd set up a master's in wellness at RMIT. We did it fully online. That's now dropped back to a grad dip, and that's still running a fully online grad dip, graduate diploma in in wellness. Yep. And I started um, recruiting PhD students, and um, and I tended to recruit students who wouldn't otherwise get in, and who had gone out and had an amazing life, and were going back to studies. And my first student was um, Leslie Braun, Aha. who um, she was you know, she uh, she was a friend of mine for for many years. Yeah. Um, and you know, she'd done in the pharmacy world what I was doing in the medical world of integrating natural medicine with con- you know, conventional practice, and um, she approached me to write this book, Herbs and Natural Supplements, an evidence-based guide, which was something I, I did a little bit reluctantly, but I realized it was great education for me because I hadn't learned enough, what I thought was enough about nutrition and herbs in my medical career. And I made a deal with her. I'd help her write the book if she then did her PhD with me. And um, she was an amazing student. You know, she amazing lady. Use, use of complementary medicine in hospitals and in cardiac surgery patients and very quickly did her PhD, but 14 years later, I'm still with her writing the book. Um, <laughs> which, which I might point out to our listeners, and and I would I would thoroughly recommend this book for a as a pinnacle book, the first book that any naturopathic or natural medicine student should or integrative medicine practitioner should buy. That's Herbs and Natural Medicine, a an evidence based guide, a third edition. It's now it's in its fourth. It's edition, fourth edition. It's the two volume. two volume. Yeah, yeah. Um, so herbs and natural supplements, an evidence-based guide, fourth edition, which is in two volumes. Um, it it's is interesting because that we're just saying that that book, um, the first ten or twelve chapters, are just general chapters about nutritional medicine, yeah. herbal medicine, integrative medicine, and the, the next hundred and thirty chapters go through individual herbs. But um, I'm I'm now teaching a course to chiropractors, osteopaths, and um, Chinese medicine practitioners about medical diagnosis and how to write referral letters. Yeah. And I couldn't find any other textbook that talks about interdisciplinary communication, multidisciplinary practice, and writing referral letters. Yeah. Yet, 14 years ago, when we first wrote that book, I wrote a chapter on that. So I'm still using that chapter, which has been revised <laughs> a little bit, and, you know, about how to write a referral letter to a doctor um, in that chapter on integrative medicine. And I might also add is that on the um, National Prescribing Service um, Service website, the NPS, um, in 2009, it ranked uh, on, in the top four resources and the only book for evidence-based um, natural medicine for physicians to, to access. So congratulations to that, to both you and Leslie. Yeah, so Leslie was an amazing student and she's still you know, an amazing individual heading up the Blackmores Research Institute now. Um, but since I've had nine or ten, um, you know, postgraduate, and masters, and, and PhD students, and they continue to be amazing. And my current um, crop or mob of students is—they just blow me away continually. Mm. And it's interesting because I have a lot of naturopaths who come and do postgraduate studies. So right now I've got um, Lauren Burns, who was the Olympic gold medalist in Taekwondo for Australia at the Sydney Olympics. Yeah, and. Um, she, she's also a naturopath, and she's studying you know, the effects of organic food and lifestyle on athletic performance. I've got Nicole Bilsma, who is an amazing naturopath and Chinese medicine practitioner who has her own college of building biology, teaching 
people about the effects of chemicals and electromagnetic fields and mould and the built environment on health. And um, she's researching how we assess environmental chemicals clinically. Um, Lisa Rhodes was a naturopath who she studied the effects of organic food on um, pesticide exposure, and we showed you know, her research showed that. Uh, 80% organic diet for one week reduces pesticide loads by 90% in urine. So that was quite sort of groundbreaking research. Absolutely. And um, I've got other students now researching um, holy basil, Tulsi, and um, also sweat. And his, um, Joy has said he's, uh, she's actually a medical doctor. He's researching um, metabolomics in sweat. So we're looking at sweat as an excretory organ and um, the functions of the different types of sweat and how that can be modified to enhance wow. excretion of xenobiotic chemicals. Ah. I, I want to talk a little bit further on, on Tulsi, holy basil, because you've actually written a paper on it called Tulsi, Osimum Sanctum, a herb for all reasons, um, which you can, I think it's the full access, the full text article it is, is online. Full, it's open access. Yeah. Um, it, holy basil's been one of my favourite herbs for years, and, and yet it just sus, doesn't seem to have reached the, the pinnacle of popularity, if you like. And I don't understand it because it's this multifactorial herb. Can you explain a little bit about its actions and where the research is leading us? Sure. And um, I mean, it was a revelation for me too. And my first introduction, as I say, I've had incredible mentors throughout my life. And um, I was exposed to Tulsi through another great mentor of mine, Christopher Dean, who um, he, he founded the tea tree oil industry in Australia. Um really by himself, so his company, Thursday Plantation, ah, really commercialised okay. tea tree oil. Yeah. And then he had a big product company, Greenwich Health, that had a whole range of products. And he was introduced to Tulsi through now a good friend of both of ours, Bharat Mitra, who was the founder of Organic India. So he's actually an Israeli man who went to India and met uh, an American woman. Together they sat at their feet of their guru, Papaji, and um, were directed to do good with... Um, their inherited wealth and, and create a, a company, Organic India, to bring Tulsi and organic herbs to the world. Mm-hmm. And um, Christopher went to, to India to see if he could bring that to Australia. And he was so blown away by what they were doing, he um, ended up selling his company and becoming chairman of their board. And he kept on telling me about Tulsi and, and introduced me to that. To and and got and since then was invited to India and see what they were doing with. Um, biodynamic farming, and they've got now 10,000 um, biodynamic small-scale farmers you know, cultivating Tulsi, and they're selling in 45 countries. But as a um, you know, doctor, or, and I'm not a herbalist, but you know, in studying herbs, I, I really didn't know much about it. And then I, when I went to India, I realized that Tulsi, and writing about it, is the most revered herb in the whole Ayurvedic pharmacopoeia, and that it's actually worshipped as a god. It's called the incomparable one, or the you know, Mother Nature's gift to humanity. And every Hindi household would normally have a Tulsi plant, usually in a ceramic pot, that's the site of, of um, a, a ritual, a daily, daily ritual. Mm. And for me, Tulsi embodies the healing power of nature, or that regenerative power of nature, where we're connected to the earth, and then we nurture the earth, and the earth brings forth a plant, and then the plant nurtures us. And that, that's a continual cycle. And I think in the West, we've lost connection with that cycle. It's very rare that Absolutely. we eat food on a daily basis, that we ingest, that, um, that we've grown ourselves. And, you know, we, we rely on other people to farm our food or, you know, grow our food. And if you think about it, there's 
if if you're going to grow any plant that you could eat from every day, there's not many plants that could do that. I mean, vegetables and fruits are seasonal and they're hard work to, to generate. But you can have a, a big tulsi plant that grows as a perennial basil in your garden, and it grows very well in Australia. Mm. And you can take, you know, like they do in India, as a ritual, you take one or two leaves and ingest them every day, and the plant will actually thrive, and you'll thrive, mm. and it keeps you in that loop of that creative power of nature. And that's just as a ritual process, but then when you start to explore the properties of Tulsi, of holy basil, oxalum, sanctum, it's considered the ultimate adaptogen. And you know, we introduced a chapter on Tulsi in the fourth edition of our book, Herbs and Natural Supplements. And I thought it would be quite a small chapter to write. And when I went into it, there was over 300 references yeah. and it ended up being a 10,000-word chapter. And in re- and researching that chapter, you realise that anything bad you can do to a rat or a lab- laboratory um, you know, rodent, they've done, and the Tulsi uh, <laughs> prevents damage. Yeah. So whether it's, you know, it's subjecting them to chemicals or direct radiation or UV or... Um, you know, forced swimming tests or these models of Alzheimer's disease or diabetes or anxiety or depression. And they've got these models of depression and, labor- and anxiety in laboratory animals where they subject the animals to white noise, either as sudden bursts, which make, makes the animals scared and anxious, or continual white noise, which makes them depressed. No, no matter what you do to a laboratory animal, if you give it Tulsi, you'll protect it from any adverse effects. Indeed, its name um, means matchless, doesn't it? Tulsi means matchless. Yeah, the incomparable one. Yeah. There's no other herb that compares to it. Yeah. Um, and every part of it, the plant is edible. And even the rhizomes and the root, the rhizosphere, which is sort of the, the microbial and um, fungi mm-hmm. that live around its roots, yeah. um, have beneficial properties. And they actually say traditionally that the soil that the Tulsi grows from is holy. Now, this is something very here. interesting. Um, <laughs> Organic India are actually involved with um, planting Tulsi plants around the Taj Mahal yeah. to protect the Taj Mahal from air pollution because Tulsi helps purify the air. Tulsi helps also purify water. It's, it's antimicrobial, it's anti inflammatory, it's um, anti diabetic. It's, it's, I mean, its properties are just so far ranging. Although there's, there really isn't a lot, I mean, there's a few now, but not a lot of. You know, high-quality human studies. Most of the studies have been done in, in vitro or in animals, and they're just starting now to do human studies. But in the studies that have been done, it's been shown to be effective for metabolic syndrome, so it reduces blood pressure, cholesterol, um, uh, stabilises blood sugar levels. Um, it's been shown to improve stress and anxiety. And and one of the things that occurs to me that... Um, that the whole world, I mean, beverages are so important. You know, what we drink, you know, drinking pure water or just, you know, the beverage that we drink really affect our whole culture. And the Western culture is based on alcohol, yeah. caffeine, and sugar. Yeah. And no matter where you go, you can go to any hotel room in the world, or in any place in the world, there'll be sugar drinks, you know, all the fizzy um, soft drinks yeah. with sugar. There'll be caffeine, there'll be, you know, coffee and teas, and there'll be alcohol available. Mm. And we, and from the sugar we crave energy, from the caffeine we crave a you know a lift, and the alcohol we crave um you know being you know, reducing anxiety and you know, relaxing. Escape, us. yeah. Yet, yet all of those have quite serious adverse effects. Yet Tulsi has the same benefits. Tulsi 
um, relaxes you um, without having the depression effects of alcohol. So Tulsi gives you this calm relaxation. Um, so the benefits of alcohol without the adverse effects, it, it actually gives you a stable blood sugar reading, so it actually increases your energy, but it doesn't give you that up and down that sugar does with the you know, high insulin and then you know, the hypoglycemia. And um, Tulsi also gives you a lift, um, but it doesn't have caffeine. So it actually stimulates you and makes you more aware without that sort of buzz or the jitteriness of caffeine. So Tulsi has all the benefits of caffeine, um, sugar and alcohol without the, without the downside. Yet it's surprising to me that it's not more widely available. But then, then you realise that caffeine, alcohol and sugar drinks are multi-billion dollar industries that are global industries. Yet Tulsi is something you can grow yourself um, and you can make it yourself. I mean, I mean, Organic India uh, sell this around the world and, and they do, you, know, you can buy Organic India tea. Mm. But um, it's much more available yeah. for people to do it themselves. But you can't really have your own sugar plantation. Or, I mean, people do make their own alcohol, um, but you know, it's hard to grow your own coffee. But yes, Tulsi is something that, you know, I, I like to think of as part of the gift economy. And, I, and I indeed now, you um, do that, don't you? You have? Yeah, well, every Christmas, I, yeah. you know, we started a ritual a couple of years ago where um, I took some cuttings from Tulsi plants and and put them in water. And, and, and they're, uh, Tulsi flowers, there's three main varieties, Krishnavana and, and um, Rama Tulsi. One's a purple flower, one's a white flower. And... You can cut the flowers, and, and as a flower, the, the scent, they're high in eugenol, so similar to rosemary, they give you a bit of an uplift. They mm. actually, the, the scent um, repels mosquitoes and other biting insects, but the, it's a very pleasant smelling, you know, basil-y type smell, a little bit more clovey than normal basil. Um, but you can cut the flowers and put them in a vase, and I have them on my kitchen table pretty much permanently as um, cuttings. And, and after a week or so, those cuttings will sprout roots. So you can just take those cuttings and plant them up, and you know, give them you know, like like you would a kombucha mother, and um, you can give you know give them away and say this is the gift that keeps on giving mm. because you can you can plant it yourself, you can grow, then you can eat um, a couple of leaves every day or make tea from it every day, and when it's big enough, you can take cuttings from that and then give it away again. So I mean, Tulsi really is a a wonderful herb, but it also sort of embodies this, as I say, this regenerative power of nature. I, I also want to talk about your involvement with the Integrative Medicine Association, but also the Wellness Association, the Australasian Wellness Association. But before I get onto that, I just want to ask a quick question about how you handled being in both camps of alternative, I'll call it, and orthodox how you handled that very often quite emotionally charged argument between we are right and they're wrong. How, how do you cross that bridge or, or how do you well, combine the two? It's interesting you say how do I cross that bridge because I've, I've always um, thought of myself as the bridge. And, um, and actually I was at a Leonard Cohen concert a few years ago and someone said to me, um, do you realise the word Cohen? One of the meanings of the word Cohen is bridge. Oh, really? <laughs> which was a revelation. Ah. Um, but um, but and the thing about being a bridge is you need to have access to both sides of the chasm. And you know, the, the stronger the access, you know, the bigger the the arterial road the, from your bridge to the centre of either side. Yeah. You know, the more useful the bridge. And so the way I've managed this is to really take both sides and try and understand both sides. So if I find myself you know, 
focus more on one side. I say, how do I, you know, what's the the opposite of that? You know, how do I balance that? Um, so I do have one foot, you know, very firmly in Western medicine and Western science and that whole um, reductionist paradigm. But then I've got the other foot very firmly on the the holistic paradigm of um, more Eastern traditions of of spirituality and of of natural medicine. And I find that by you know, really trying to be balanced between the two, trying to find the midpoint between any discussion and trying to understand both sides. That's kept me in very good stead. And it's also kept me from, I guess, being too extreme in either direction. Mm. Um, so I, I, have a, I have a listening from both camps. So I, I talk to a lot of natural medicine conferences, but I also speak to a lot of specialist medical conferences. And, and you know, at either group, you know, I'm speaking to my peers. Um, yeah. So I think that gives me a great listening, but also I learn a lot from both camps and that keeps me balanced. I liked the way at an integrative conference once that you were basically um, challenging the audience to give their points across to reach a consensus on a particular point. Um, so basically to bring in all of the points of relevance of research or of clinical um uh, clinical use of something and say, okay, can we reach a consensus on what this should be used for and what it shouldn't be used for? And it was really good. It was a really good meeting of the minds that I saw. It was very well done. You know, I really enjoyed that, that meeting of the minds or the meeting of the paradigms because I find it's where they overlap. Mm. And for me, that's it's, it's the intersection where the interest is for me. Uh, so it's the intersection of disciplines, and and it's been a it's been challenging, I must say, in the academic world because in the academic world we compartmentalise disciplines. Yeah. So, and you know now I'm teaching. Uh, you know, yesterday I taught a group of 300 osteo Cairo and Chinese medicine students, and they're in separate disciplines. And even though they have you know, shared lectures throughout their their um courses, they don't talk much to each other, and they're in the same class, and. You know, let alone disciplines like Western medicine and, and chiropractic or naturopathy. Um, there's not a lot of exchange. Yet wellness is something that actually crosses all of them and not only crosses the health sciences, it crosses over to the business and the design worlds. So, you know, wellness is about, you know, where we live and how we live and, and our business practices and how we, you know, workplace wellness and um, digital health. And and that's, um, again, it's it's kept me learning because I need to understand the perspective from all these other disciplines. But because I have one camp in wellness, I can then reach out to these other worlds and see how is that relevant to them and then yeah, build build bridges as I go. Indeed, you were on the working party of the RACGP AMA Joint Working Party with Integrative Medicine. How, how did you join hands, if you like? How, how did you get people to start talking to each other? Who were traditionally quite from different sort of um, sides of the of the fence or even the boxing ring in some instances, and where do, what does that mean for people like naturopaths who you know like you bring along and you you train these people, but what about naturopaths as an industry or profession with regards to the doctor uh, being in control or as the primary um, care physician? Well, I think I mean the whole landscape is changing and there is sort of power imbalances and professional territories and, and I, you know, um, sort of political um, agendas and, and there's sort of the friends of science and medicine and other groups who are, 
are very anti-natural medicine. There's natural medicine groups who are kicking back against the, you know, the corporatization of medicine. And I think both of them have you know, an element of truth, but also a whole lot of hype attached to them. And I think you know what I enjoy is really trying to find where's the truth on either side, and and how can you temper that? And and you know the way I've managed that is by talking sense. And you know, that people can't argue against. And I did that throughout the 90s when I developed the, the mnemonic SENSE, S-E-N-S-E, which stands for Stress Management, Exercise, Nutrition, Social and Spiritual Support, and Education. And I called that the pillars of complementary medicine. And and you know, because if you if you improve how you manage stress or how you move or what you eat or how you interact with the world or others and and your knowledge of your disease and what's going on, um, you'll improve your health. Now it's impossible to argue against that because it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you know that's the basic you know, principles of naturopathy. But also, you know, if you get down to the core of medicine and yeah. even general practice, yeah, that's right. you know, general practitioners are about whole person care. But, you know, the, the essence of general practice is not about drugs and surgery. It's about, you know, looking after a person and looking after um, their lifestyle. So by talking sense um, and making sense to both camps, it, you know, I found the common ground. And again, the same with wellness. You know, everybody wants wellness. It's very hard to argue against wellness mm. um, as an ideal. So in defining wellness, it creates a common ground for for disparate disciplines to get together and, and agree on. And, and now, you know, wellness has actually expanded. We know it's a, it's a $3.4 trillion global industry. But when we think about wellness, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to define it. But one of the things that keeps coming up is it's all about connection. And that's connection with yourself, with your community, with other people, your family, your, your general community, and your environment. And ultimately, with the whole world and and the discussions about wellness now, you need to realise that it, we have to consider the whole world. We're not just, you know, a state or a country or a or an ethnic group. Um, you know, my well-being depends on everybody else in the world being well. And you know, with cases of whether it's the SARS virus or uh, you know whatever epidemics you know they're hyping up about. Zika, yeah. If someone gets sick on the other side of the world, that affects affects me. And mm. if someone's polluting on the other side of the world, that also affects me. So it, it expands our consciousness and our awareness. The idea of wellness um, expands our awareness to include the whole planet and the whole biosphere. And ultimately, again, that's something you can't argue against, although it becomes um, sometimes overwhelming for people when they're trying to deal with their own personal issues, whether it's, you know, chronic disease or their own personal practice, you know, when you try and bring global issues to your everyday practice, it becomes a bit overwhelming. But ultimately, I think that's what we all have to do. We have to bring a global awareness to all our purchasing decisions and to our lifestyles and the way we practice. And by doing that, you know, that's the only way I see that, you know, we can, you know, thrive and be well as a species. And, um, at the moment, we're not doing such a great job about it. And you're president of the Australasian Wellness Association, so that, I'm going to guess, is part of your charter. Absolutely. In fact, our catch line now is it's all about connection. And you know, we're a not-for-profit industry association, so we're trying to engage you know, the industry, but um, you know, there's different sectors, and it's still undefined you know, what is the wellness industry. And, and you know, 
we can look at um, a whole range of different sectors within that. So there's all the different practitioner groups, and there's you know, 10 practitioner groups that are APRA registered. So, you know, registered by the um, Australian government. So, you know, they have registration boards, so whether it's medical or pharmacy or nursing or psychology or, you know, osteopathy, chiro boards. Then there's the unregistered ones, which natu- naturopathy still falls under. Yep. That they're not nationally registered, but yep. then the massage therapy and, and counselling and others. So they all, you know, they all certainly fit within the gamut. But within wellness, there's, um, I mean, the cleaning industry are talking about wellness and using, you know, low volatile organic um, compounds and low toxic products. And then there's um, the building industry are talking about wellness. And then you've got health insurance and healthcare and the, and the digital world and all the digital apps around wellness. And then you've got um, beauty and hairdressing and, and all those um, aspects and the leisure industry and product supplies and, and um, I mean the list just goes on and on I mean you could, I mean, you could be a wellness plumber um, doing eco plumbing um, so there's what? really no end to the, the different areas that you know wellness applies to and, and whether it's nutraceuticals or they call it nature-ceuticals now, yeah. you know, doing herbs or um, people involved with the environment or environmental re- remediation and permaculture and all, all these elements um, are sort of deeply involved with wellness and what we're trying to do as a professional association is to connect them all because it's all about connection. Mark, you've led quite a few students through their research careers, as you've mentioned before, and commonly I'll get asked, by naturopathic students who wish to further their careers into research, but how do they get their foot in the door? Because it's not as simple as, I want to study this, so let's do it. It's just, there's a lot more to consider. What do they need to do? Well, I mean, you're right, there is a lot more to consider, and it's actually getting more and more difficult. I know, I mean, if, I mean, I've, I've had people apply this year to, to do, you know, PhDs and um, some, you know, a few are successful, most weren't. But under the current criteria, even Leslie wouldn't get in. Um, she was one of my most stellar students because <laughs> now stellar, to get into yes. a, you know, a, a PhD program, you need to, one, be an outstanding student. And that means to have a, at least an honours degree with H1, uh, you know, um, first-class honours, preferably with at least one publication, um, or have a master's degree with a research component um, with a first-class honours and preferably have one publication. Then you need to get funded and that means, um, I mean, the fees for a PhD or a master's by research are about $20,000 a year, that order. Mm. So that's just the university fees. And then you have to live. And that's, um, I mean, if there are scholarships available. The current Australian um, Postgraduate Award, the APA, is about $28,000 tax-free per year, which is not a lot to live on. But, no. I mean, it's nice to have some tax-free income. Yeah. But those scholarships are incredibly competitive and they're really geared towards um, researchers who have gone from their bachelor in you know, science or whatever to their honours in someone's lab and then continue straight to PhD. And I find with naturopaths and the students certainly that I've attracted who've you know, gone out in the world and done amazing things. They've won Olympic gold medals, they've written books and set up colleges and done great things, but they're not academically competitive, even though they're you know, highly... Um, powerful and professional and accomplished individuals. So, you know, one is, you know, and you need to be that. I think, you know, to do a, a postgraduate master's or PhD, you need to be really passionate about what you're doing. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't 
I mean, other people might, but I wouldn't support a student who's not really passionate about what they're doing because you need that internal drive. Because you can, you know, you want because when you do a PhD about something, you live and breathe it. Mm. You know, it becomes, you know, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and getting ideas and writing them down and staying up really late reading, you know, quite dense scientific papers because that's what you're interested in. Mm. So it's a, you need a drive that really you know, compels you to do that. But then you need these other things, and and it helps to have a, um, you know, a supportive environment, whether that's your partner or your home environment that can help support you. Because you know, if, I mean, the scholarships are very hard to come by, and there are some external scholarships. And I must acknowledge and and give my gratitude to the Jacker Foundation, um, who have supported three of my students. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Judy Jacker, you know, who founded the Southern School of, and and Alf Jacker founded the Southern School of Natural Therapy. Mm now a foundation that supports natural therapies research uh-huh. and they're supporting um, Nicole Bilsmer and Lauren Burns and Joy Hussain are three, three of my current students um, but yeah scholarships are very very hard and then once you've paid your university fees and you, you've got a living allowance or a scholarship or you can support yourself then you need project funding to support whatever project you're going to do because the universities don't have money to throw at projects, they you know you need to bring funding or you know research grants or commercial grants to help you do whatever research it is. Um, so it's 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 a um, big juggling act of putting all these ducks in a row to be able to be even accepted into the program. And then once you're accepted, you need that passion to really drive you to you know, come to your desk every day and sort through the papers and, and writing academic papers now is also you know, more challenging. It used to be you'd write a paper and um, you know if it wasn't published in the first journal, maybe a second or third that you, you submit to. But now journals want two or three thousand dollars publication fees. Yeah, you know to do it in a high quality journal that's open access to provide open access um, publication. So you need. Again, you need some funding to support even just publication of your literature review. And there's also the expectation that if you're in a um, postgraduate program, you're going to publish at least once a year of your candidature. And you want to publish in the highest impact factor journals that you can. So there's pressure to to publish or perish, as they say in academia. So it is challenging. I think it's very rewarding. I mean, I, I love the interactions I have with my students, and they teach me an awful lot. I think much more than I ever teach them. Um, and yeah, I've been very, very fortunate in that I've attracted, as I say, very passionate um, and very accomplished, um, mainly women. I've had a few men. Stephen Penman was a great student of mine who he did the Yoga in Australia survey and yes. went on to become the head of ACNEM. Um, so yeah, I've, I've had amazing students and. Um, Right now, I'm actually trying to focus them down so we're all focusing on the same area rather than having students on very, very disparate um, topics. And we're focusing more on lifestyle, um, environmental chemicals, detoxification as a, a general focus of our research group. Mm. And, and really on wellness and how we measure that. So wellness metrics is, is a big part of what we do. That ties well in with the Australasian Wellness Association. So, Mark, I, I have to disagree with you with one point you made, and that is that uh, they teach you more than you teach them. I think you're underselling yourself there quite a lot um, for what you've given to the industry and indeed practitioners all throughout. I, I remember stuff from you, gosh, more than 10 years ago, looking at even topical glucosamine 
um, preparations. So please don't undersell yourself there. And I would love to continue chatting with you about research ideas and indeed what research tells us about the evidence that we have for the use of complementary uh, medicines and, and how they can help nat, um, pharmacological medicines or medical treatment of conditions. Well, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but um, just on that teaching bit, I mean, it's, it's fantastic to have students because they can sift through all the literature and then they come back and report back to me. So they, you know, they're, they're sorting out literature and, and organising material and then bringing stuff to my attention that I wouldn't otherwise yeah. be aware of. So, I mean, I'm, I do learn an enormous amount from my students. And, I mean, the guidance I give them is, you know, I, I'm still bit of my passion maybe, but, um, you know, it's the guidance of how to navigate the system. Mm. And I think maybe it's maybe if it's you know if they don't teach me more I'm more maybe it's just a balanced exchange and I'd like to think it's at least balanced. Um, but I, I you know as I, say, I learn an enormous amount from my students and they bring a lot to my attention and um, you know it's great having you know they accomplish people because they they bring me very high level sort of information and that's one of the skills of a researcher. And I keep on telling my students you know um, you need to write abstracts all the time and whether it's for a a conference or a media release or a grant application or um, you're trying to get someone else to be part of your team and, and be a co-author, you're always writing abstracts. So your ability to communicate effectively is incredibly important. Um, and and funnily enough, I do the same thing with my um, undergraduate students, so the Osteo Cairo and Chinese medicine students. I teach them how to write case reports and referral letters. And our ability to or their ability to you know, really um, concisely and accurately and intelligently write up a case that gives all the pertinent details and, and paints a clinical picture in a very brief um, you know, uh, essay, that then forms the basis of professional communication. And you know, when we say it's all about connection, you know, that's how we connect through, through these effective communication forums. So whether it's a referral letter or a scientific abstract, the same thing comes down to how do we convey what we know in a very um, concise way so then other people can understand where we're coming from and we can find common ground. And that's exactly what you've done. I'm very thankful for your whole career so far, um, bridging that, you know, finding that common ground between the two camps. It's great. Professor Mark Cohen, thank you so much for taking us through all that you do and all that you're involved in and also, you know, taking new people along so that they can then bring new research to, uh, you know, integrative medicine. Well done. Well, thank you, Andrew, for the opportunity. I look forward to uh, speaking to you sometime again in the future. Look forward to it. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, Please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.